All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 12 of the Dan Wilkins Show. This is, of course, the new format that we've been trying for a while. And even though the part that you will hear in the first part of the episode or have already heard is being recorded out of order, I am glad to announce that the, that the format that we had all the way back in 2020 is back for another go around, even if this is mostly just an audio only sort of podcast in our new age and our new revival. Here in this episode, we may not have um, somebody that you're going to find on the Forbes for Forbes Forbes 500 or whatever, but you know you're going to see um, you, you know you're going to see some interesting names I think in the next couple of weeks on this podcast, main, mainly because these are people that have a lot of interesting stories and they've been um, in their respective industries for a long time. So today's special guest is Colby Evans. Now he has been a uh, pit reporter and pit crew member for some ARCA and NASCAR teams, including uh, Ty, uh, Timmy Hill's truck team, Hill Motorsports, that was just recently founded a couple, uh, couple of months ago in 2022 and has been making the full effort in the 2022 truck schedule. And also for Brad Smith, he's been doing some pit crew work for him as well. So we're going to be talking to Colby today about a lot of things involving NASCAR, ARCA, and everything in between. Welcome to the show, Colby. Good to have you on. Thank uh Good to be on here. Thanks, Dan. You'll appreciate it. <laughs> of course. And of course, Kobe also runs the ARCA Racing Podcast, which um, I'm going to have to give another listen to tonight because there was a big episode that dropped last night, the night before that we uh, recorded this, all about the G2G racing uh, fiasco that's gone down at Sonoma Raceway in the last couple of weeks and the backlash that has come from that. But we'll be talking about that in a little bit. For my first question for you, Colby, uh, how'd you get your start in NASCAR? Because it's quite obvious that um, this is not just a side gig for you. This is everything that that you seem to enjoy in the world of motorsports. This is NASCAR. I mean, you got some sheet metal behind you there. Um, how'd you how'd you get your start? Um, you know, loving motorsports and loving NASCAR. It was really around uh, 2006. Um, I was originally a train kid growing up, but my brother. And my father, you know, they were the guys who would watch the bush races, the truck races and the cup races where I'd be in my room watching the trains. But around late 2006, I went I started watching the races with my dad. And I'll just say it was the 2006 uh, UAW 500 where Brian Vickers took out Johnson and Earnhardt. I'll never forget my dad screaming. And from the instant I was hooked. Now, was I, he a Vickers fan or was he no, a Johnson he Earnhardt, Earnhardt fan? Full Earnhardt, dude. That's got to hurt. Yeah, I'll never forget that day. And pretty much ever since then, I was hooked because I'm like, if my dad's going to scream like this every Sunday, it must be entertaining. So pretty much ever since then, I've been hooked. And even though my brother and my dad were mainly, you know, watching the cup races and butch, uh, bush races, um, I would always like to watch the truck races. And I used to like the ARCA race or I would watch the ARCA races just kind of the lower tier series really interested me a lot more. Like I still enjoyed the um, then nationwide series and next L cup series, but the, the um, truck series and like the, what was then the KN series that was also entertaining me. I love watching the modifieds. Every form of racing just became my life. And, you know, over the years, I eventually started going to races, um, whether that be IndyCar, whether that be NASCAR, whether that be a form of road racing series, and eventually when I turned around, let's see here, 15 or 16 years old, I'd finally made up my mind. I'm tired of watching these crew members go to work. I want to be in there. And luckily, you know, basically through some easy messages and 
getting a hold of the right people. I was able to get my first relationship with uh, not Carl Long, but actually Morgan Shepard was actually my, the very first guys I got a hold of um, in 2016, which then brought me to Carl Long, which then, of course, with Timmy Hill's relationship with Carl Long brought me to Timmy. Um, and in the ARCA side, I had originally volunteered for Wayne Peterson and Wayne Peterson and Brad Smith are best friends. And that's pretty much how it kind of all together. It's like a communication of friends between friends that has led me to different people and led me to all these great opportunities. Well, think about how it is in my industry in sportscasting. You know, you don't get your foot in the door by simply being good. You get your foot in the door through networking. You get your foot in the door by having connections, knowing names, having cell numbers, and, you know, being able to communicate with people. Because if you're completely independent out by yourself, you don't have anybody else you're in uh, alliance with or, you know, in cahoots with, then you don't really have a, a, a good shot. You know, you got some, you got your foot in the door as being a crew member by having these messages with, um, you know, with, with Long and Shepard and, and all those other folks that have really propelled you into where you are today. Um, so yeah, I, I, that is interesting about the whole, um, about the whole train ordeal, because, um, there's a couple of people that I know in the NASCAR community that either also like trains or used to like trains before they, before they got into motorsports, because I think they saw that, trains are a little bit slower than stock cars yeah. <laughs> they're, they're just a little bit slower and they're just a little heavier but um you know they, they don't exactly have the uh the wheel ability that that stock cars do but i guess um that also begs the question of what's what sparked your appreciation for the underfunded teams you know because i feel like a lot of people that go that get into nascar they always look at the driver that's in first they always look at the drivers that are ahead of the game and running up front because that's where the TV cameras show them. But I, I feel like that's more of a casual approach for yourself being much more focused on backmarker and underfunded teams. where did you get that start? Where did, where did that spark you? It was really the 2008 ARCA race at Iowa. It was like my second or third race I'd ever went to. And, you know, the front of the field would go by, and then like five seconds later, here come the back markers. And it's just whether the cars sound like junk, kind of, you know, they're racing each other. They're just putting around there. And we would just, for some reason, we'd just be like, yeah, go 34th place car. And we were just, <laughs> we were having so much fun cheering on these slow cars when I was a kid. And, and then we'd watch them make pit stops and it would not take seconds. It would take almost minutes. And that's not to dig at them. That's because they were just trying as hard as they could. And the older I got, the more I appreciated it. Um, like uh, Joe Nemechek, when he was doing his start in parks, he was my favorite start in park as a kid. Uh, that quickly grew over to Morgan Shepard. It was just going to these races and watching these teams in the back part of the field, um, you know, who had to do start in parks. But guys like Joe Nemechek and Morgan Shepard, when they would attempt the full race, with just this, this junk car and running like 20th, 15th, beating these teams that have 15, 10 times the budget. And, you know, watching these plate races when you would see these guys who have a 10th of the budget being up there and just looking at behind the scenes and how much harder they work. They don't have the sponsorship. They don't have the crew guys. You know, half the time, sometimes the crew chief is also the spotter. I've done that myself. You know, I understand the struggle and, 
the respect I feel like is just never been deserved. The average racing fan today sees Rick Ware racing as just terrible, horrendous, you know, like they don't deserve to be there. I've followed Rick Ware racing since 2009 and they are without a doubt my top in my top three of low budget teams that I cheer for because they've worked so hard and it's just uh, sitting at the race, watching the cars at the back of the field in my opinion, is just kind of more fun because the battles are actually a lot more entertaining, in my opinion. You don't see side-by-side on camera, but if you go to the race and you watch the back of the field, the side-by-side action is more realistic. It's more unbelievable, and those guys are really racing for everything they got because those guys who are racing for, like, 30th and 31st, well, that extra purse money might decide what they do the next week. So they're actually going to be very risky despite being taken care of their own equipment and I find that battle honestly more intriguing than a battle for say fourth. And I feel like that's why the uh, more high end, high budget teams like Hendrick or Joe Gibbs or Stuart Haas, any of those guys, they are more willing to put it all on the line week in and week out. You absolutely. might see, you know, um, like Kyle Larson, you might see him absolutely wheel it in the turn one, you know, overdriving yeah. the car as much as he can, fighting for that extra spot. But the underfunded teams, they're a lot more conservative because you wreck a race car. Well, you don't you're it's not guaranteed you're going to have an extra one at the shop for next week. It's the motorsports equivalent of living paycheck to paycheck really is. Yeah, that's definitely a part of it, man. And I, you know, working for a lot of those teams, you know, you really appreciate a driver who can get so much out of the car, but yet take such good care of it at the same time. That is a skill that I feel like is so lost in motorsports. But when you find those drivers who are able to, you know, get up to the top 20, top 15, and yet just stay clean, not a scratch on that car, just the dirt and buildup that happens. That is a real racing talent, in my opinion, and something I feel like very, very few drivers have that capability of doing uh, week to week to week. Because a lot of these people, what they don't realize is while the pain schemes may look different, the actual bodywork and the actual chassis is more than likely the same car every single week just with a new wrap. But that's hard to tell because, of course, with the paint scheme different, how are you supposed to know? Yeah, and I've seen before that um, that a lot of older ARCA cars, even like um, even ARCA now now mandating that you use the Gen 6 bodies like the um, Chevrolet SS, which, by the way, in my 16 years of existence, I have never seen a Chevrolet SS in person, except for in Arca. <laughs> I, I don't know why they chose that, but the, like the SS, the Fusion, um, those 2013 to 2015 cars, they might have the newer bodies. And even um, DGR with uh, the first ever Arca Mustang, um, they may use the older cars, but they still have even older chassis. You know, everybody knows about Chris Fontaine and the, uh, or maybe not everybody, freak but body, Chris yeah. Fontaine and the freak chassis that yeah. was the plate chassis for like, what, 10, 15 years for, for Chris? Over 20 years. Over 20 years. Yeah. Cause I remember watching one of the, one of the episodes about that and, and it, it just blew me away because you see the paint schemes change every week, but you never really think about the body work and, and the chassis that goes along with that. That thing goes back a long way. I think there was one case. It may have been Brad Smith. It may have been somebody else, but I saw somebody posted on Twitter where there was um, a Ryan Newman Martinsville chassis. You might remember what I'm talking That's about. That's us. Yeah, that was Brad Smith. Okay. Cause I saw, cause 
Because I saw something on Twitter where it was um, Ryan Newman's Martinsville car from, I think, 2003 to 2004. One of the the, uh, Winston to Nextel years, something of the sort in the early to mid 2000s. And I remember it it actually qualified on pole. And you said that was for Brad? Yep. uh, Penske Racing South Dash 69 was built in August of 2003. Ooh, long time back. But yeah, that's a... I mean, that is a long time ago. When you think about how much different the Nextel Cup or Winston Cup cars of that era were compared to the ARCA cars of today, it's amazing that the chassis can just conform to the different body panels and the different bodywork. You can make a completely different car out of the same chassis. I've seen um, truck chassis, for example, with Chris Fontaine and a bunch of other underfunded truck teams. They've been using the same chassis for like you know, a couple, couple years, maybe even 10 years, 10, 15 years. And of course, Fontaine being an extreme example of that, but these chassis that evolve from, from over time, I feel like that's what gets lost in the art of underfunded teams, because you see these high-end millionaire teams, multimillionaire teams that just switch chassis like year to year, maybe even, maybe even like track type to track type. They just change, they change the chassis every week. Well, then where does that trickle down? The high-end teams like Penske Racing, in your case, trickles down and trickles down again. And then it goes to somebody like Brad, who 10, 15 years down the road needs that chassis on a completely different body, on a completely different manufacturer for a completely different purpose. And that's just absolutely amazing to me. Now, that chassis that was Ryan Newman's for Penske Racing South, that was used at Kansas this year, right? That has basically been used since the start of 2019 at Daytona. That chassis has run uh, over 60 races. Because I, I saw the post in regards to, I think it was from the Kansas weekend, but I had no idea that it had been running that long. I guess that shows uh, it's a real, a real true testament to how clean Brad keeps his race cars a lot of the time. Because, yeah. I, I mean, he's got to be – he is he is no um, – he is no spring chicken. He's been in ARCA for a long time. He used to run for um, James Hilton's team before his unfortunate passing um, in 2015. Yeah. And I guess when, I don't know if you know anything about this, but when James Hilton died in 2015, I, did he like acquire his assets from the team? Because he kept the sponsor, Radon.com, and he kept the number number 48 and he basically kept the same paint schemes back when Arco was running, you know, old gen four cars. So did he buy out like, or acquire those assets? From what I know? Yes. Um, kind of just wanted to keep the legacy of the team going, even though he had been running number 26 with Hilton's passing, they just wanted to continue the number 48. And that's just kind of been Brad's goal. You know, he, he knows he ain't going to finish first. He know he won't even finish 10th. Most of the time he's just out there to keep the Hilton legacy alive and, just over go out there and have a good time. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes he told me is I may not be the fastest, but I'm damn sure having fun. And I mean, man, that's, that's the goal, right? Yeah. At least in his yeah, case, he's having fun. Yeah. Cause I mean, he, it, like I said, he's not some TRD prospect. that's like 19 years old, making Xfinity starts. He's I think upper forties, probably 50. It'll be 54. Uh, I think this October. Oh, okay. So yeah, he's, he's been, uh, he's been running ARCA for a long time. And, um, and I, I think that you still need people like that in an age where, you know, Ty Gibbs, I think it was 2020 or 2021, he was, you know, racking up 
his wins in Arca and it almost felt like that it just it, it, it almost was like bushwhacking again, except even lower on the totem pole because you have guys like Ty Gibbs that are, you know, running around with let's be honest, let's, let's not, let's not beat around the bush. It's daddy's money. (laughs) You know, it's, it's Ty Gibbs running under the Joe Gibbs banner. And maybe even 20 years ago, we saw the same thing with Coy Gibbs, although Coy's career didn't exactly pan out Mm -hmm. as well. But, um, you know, for Ty and all those other guys like Venturini Motorsports, you know, those are like, there still is a separation between the high end and the low end teams at ARCA. And you still need those, underfunded teams to keep this to keep the lights on because you look at the uh entry lists i've seen some of the entry lists from the regional series arca west arca east they're barely clearing 20 if you know they're barely clearing like a dozen and a half and i understand that travel costs have gone up since the pandemic and there's been a lot of repercussions that's been going on in the last two years or so but entry lists are still not getting better. The better teams are getting even better and the worst teams are getting even worse. And you have to find something to fill in that middle gap. And that's why teams like Brad Smith, uh, Brad Smith Motorsports, um, Wayne Peterson's team, um, Tim Richmond and uh, Tim Richmond with, uh, I believe, Alex Club. And um, you could even argue Fast Track um, owned by Andy Hillenberg. Those are the guys that keep ARCA alive for what it is. for what it is even if it was bought out by nascar a couple of years back i still think arca has a a charm that is a lot different than regular nascar national series racing yeah for sure man i i've said it myself multiple times you know for some people you know they take it as a weird take but i some people do agree with me i still agree that you know a lot of ways arca is still what nascar was back in the 1950s and 60s where you know you only had 20 25 car fields and sometimes you only had 18 car fields you had the people who were always going to run up front you had the people who are going to get there but maybe run about fifth then you had your people who were going to be lucky to finish and then you had your people who are just going to show up for a lap and collect the money right that's what a lot of that was nascar back in the 1950s and 60s and i believe arca still resembles that today um where you have you know the people who are there to just strictly start and park the people who are just trying to make it to the flag, the people who are trying to get a great finish, and then the people you know who are going to win. Yes, those those top contenders, which is why I think there really hasn't been, I haven't followed like ARCA point standings or anything like that for, you know, like I haven't followed it religiously or anything, but I don't think there's been a good ARCA championship battle in the last couple of years. I don't really think there's been one in a while. I mean, do, can you recall of any? Well, I think right now we're actually in uh, a pretty good one. We got three guys in pretty evenly matched cars, uh, Daniel Dye, Raja Karuth, and Nick Sanchez. I wouldn't consider none of those teams the elite team right now in ARCA. They're all only three separated by nine points. Um, I could agree that Ty Gibbs' championship battle was a little underwhelming, even though it went down to about the final four races with Corey Heim. Um the 2020 battle I'd say was very interesting with uh, the family team of Brett Holmes beating out the big boys at Venerini and Michael self. It's very true. I'll even say 2019 was interesting because you had Christian Eckes who despite missing a race still came back, won the race and the championship um, all in one race again, beating Michael self. So I think it's just not talked about enough, but 1920, put on some very entertaining championship battles, even if it was only between two to three guys 
2021 maybe, but I even think this season as well. We got three guys who are very evenly matched, and I think that championship will come down to the wire because we have a lot of tracks that those uh, kids haven't been on yet. Right. And no, that is a good point, and and that it's not talked about enough, and it's not talked enough about the fact uh, to the point where I barely even remembered that Michael Self was the 2019 ARCA champion because people overlook that. Now, I, I will ask you, do you think that the ARCA acquisition, or I should say NASCAR's acquisition of ARCA, do you think it was good for the sport? Because it's created this pipeline where there's now prospects that are, that instead of getting their start in trucks, they're getting their start directly in, um, directly in, in whether it's ARCA or ARCA East, ARCA West, and these major manufacturers are now playing a role in how those prospects develop. You could argue that guys like uh, Sammy Smith and Ty Gibbs have been products of that Toyota development that maybe a couple of years ago, we might not have seen as, as um, I would say, uh, what's the term? (laughs) Yeah. Not as successful as, as of a prospect development pipeline as there is now, you could say same thing with um, Daniel Dye for Chevrolet. So do you think, I believe it was 2017 that ARCA was bought out by NASCAR? 2019, like the end of like 2018, I think it was. Okay, so yeah, so only in the last couple of years has this happened, but I see that it's created somewhat of a pipeline for prospects to make their way up the ladder without having to find a truck ride, you know, in a crowded field. Now they could join an ARCA team, um, respective to that manufacturer, and they can seem to get their... uh, get their feet in the water that way i do i can agree with that to an extent i can't get into the full details because i do work with uh the arca series and i can't uh divulge fully into that um if i will say a problem i have with it is that they've lowered the truck age to 16 and although i can't divulge numbers i've definitely heard that um what it costs to run a competitive arca ride matches the same cost as almost a decent truck ride. So a lot of people, I I won't divulge names either, but let's just say a lot of people who are currently running the truck series were scheduled to originally run ARCA, but when they saw that the cost difference for the ride was about the same, literally within the same numbers, they just went ahead and went up to the truck series because, well, there's more, you know, more entries, more competitive field. And well, you know, with all due respect to the series, it's a heavier TV audience. Yeah, that is, that is very true. And that I think that true. aspect is what's really hurting the car counts. Because if the minimum age is 16, you know, and you have a 17-year-old kid who's, you know, run late models all the time, he's got more than enough short track experience, you know, why go to ARCA? Go to trucks. And I think that's just been a big problem. I really wish we would uh, raise the minimum age back up to 18 so a lot of these kids that we see really struggling in trucks stay in Arca, get that experience on these short tracks, and then finally go up to trucks. And well, maybe the truck series wouldn't be as big of a mess as really it's been the last couple of years. That is very true. The trucks have been pretty sloppy to watch, whether it's from a production standpoint on, on Fox's end, which hasn't been terrible, but we, I, I feel like a lot of people on Twitter, they like rejoiced when NBC took over the, the rights for the second half of the season, you know, when we started out at Nashville this year, but the, the racing quality has just not been there. You have guys that are wrecking, like, I think, um, I think it was Toby Christie. He had, it was either Michael, uh, Toby or Michael, one of those guys 
they did an incident counter for the truck series. And after like five weeks, Chris Wright had like 20 incidents. <laughs> he had racked that up. That is, um, and you know, I, I know Chris, he's, he's a really nice guy. He really yeah. is. But he's one of those guys, again, you know, he's made Xfinity starts when he's just not ready. I really wish he would have run more ARCA time because um, I don't think people realize, you know, those ARCA cars, they're not a walk in the park to drive. I mean, if you want their older cars, they're yeah, they're older chassis, they're older cars. You know, the setups on those cars, it might not look you really have to go to an ARCA race and really look at the camber setups, how they shift the car over, and sometimes how it's almost skewed out, even on a short track. And then you really get new respect of, like, these ARCA cars, man, these things are set up in such a funky way that if you really learn how to drive, I'll say if you can learn how to drive an ARCA car, say, at Winchester, you can pretty much drive a truck anywhere. I think Winchester you really got to go bumpy, tracks like Winchester, tracks like Salem, tracks like Nashville fairgrounds to really learn um, how to drive a race car. Cause you know, I agree with what a lot of people have said. If you can drive Winchester, excuse me, if you can drive Winchester perfectly, you know how to drive a race car. Cause that is arguably one of the toughest tracks I've um, seen in my life for a short track. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Winchester is a pretty bumpy one. It hasn't been repaved in a while. Yeah. It's Same one of those sailing. tracks where you, it's really hard to pass. You kind of run the outside line, but you have to go fast. If you go slow, you're going to get caught really quickly. It's one of those tracks that I really wish a lot of these truck kids, if they would run on it, I think it would really improve their driving style. And I've advocated like many people to bring the truck series to Winchester because that would be a heck of a show. But at this point with the who's in the field might not be such a great idea. And I think with how those trucks turn, they already have a tough time at Bristol I feel like Winchester yeah. with the bumps. I don't think it would. I don't think a lot of truck teams would advocate. Yeah, I mean, for, there's a lot of logistical reasons there why. Is, it's there just, is, yeah. you know, everybody's always skeptical. Like, oh, let's bring the series here, here, and here. But right. logistically, we got to think it's just not possible. Even though we all have the dream of it. Yeah, people want to be very outlandish with with the scheduling, and you have to realize travel costs are a pain in the you know they what. They really it are, is. man. It is really, I think it is one of the driving forces and the why so many people who could run a full schedule of a series choose not to. If, if ARCA was an easier series to travel for, and if it were, if like, say, if it might be easier to run a series in ARCA East or ARCA West, let me ask you this. Do you think it would be easier for a guy to run a full schedule in ARCA East or West compared to the national Arca Menard series because of how regional those two series are. I, I would actually still pick the main Arca series. It really isn't. The traveling is not as bad as people think it is. Um, other than one trip out to Phoenix, really the farthest out you're going to go is Iowa. Um, Iowa, Elko, and um, if they ever go back to road America, which they don't anymore, and Milwaukee, those are pretty much the three farthest trips. And even then, that's only about 15 hours, which is about an average trip um, if you take out Phoenix. A lot of the main series tracks are on the Midwest to East Coast. I wouldn't say it's that bad, honestly. Um, do I think the race at Phoenix is needed for the main series? No. Um, even though the car counts every time they've went there have been great. They've been great um, because of the West series. I because, know. But 
series. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> it, I mostly because of the West series. Yeah. Yeah. I, if I could take out Phoenix on the Arca schedule, I, I personally would um, and replace that with maybe another race at a track that we already have just for travel costs and reasonings. Cause I feel like if you took out the West series, it would really expose um, a short field that we haven't seen yet because even when it's a West only event, a lot of main series ARCA teams, like for instance, this fall, even though it's a West series only event, I can tell you right now, I, I can't say who, but I can tell you right now, quite a few of the main series teams will be attending that race. And we will have over a 30 car field for that race. I can tell oh, you that 30. right now. How, how, uh, how many cars were in the spring race this year? 38, 38. Wow. Okay. And I, do you, do you remember off the top of your head, how many finished the race? <laughs> Like uh, a rough estimate, 24, 24. Okay. So that's not bad because I think when people think 38 car Arca fields, they think, okay, half the field's going to be done by lap 50. But I think yeah. that I, I think that, um, Arca started out as a Midwest touring series. So why are we going all the way out 2000 miles out of our way to Phoenix raceway? I, I under- just, what, I, like, I'm why do you think that Arca does that? I think it's because of the, I noticed, I, my guess is the NASCAR acquisition because they started going to Phoenix after the NASCAR acquisition in 2020, I believe was their first year. Um, again, I really wasn't happy about it. I've been kind of negative in terms of me as a fan and a reporter. I've never really been high on Phoenix in general. And <laughs> I feel like the Arca series, they don't need to go to a track like this. There's a lot more entertaining ones on the circuit, um, especially a lot closer. Um, But yeah, so like, for instance, if you just want to throw a random track, I would trade um, Phoenix for South Boston. Right away. Yeah, I would 100% do that. And that's in good enough shape to race, right? They do like modified races all the time. Yeah. Yeah, they just had the SRX race there, you know, uh, literally last week. I mean, yeah, go to Stafford, go to... Go to Stockton 99, go to, um, you know, like I said, South Boston. I was going to say Myrtle Beach, but, well, that one's gone. But still, like, there's a lot really good short tracks on the East Coast that the Arca Series would excel at, and I just don't think we need to go to Phoenix. But, you know, at the end of the day, I don't make the schedule. Yeah, right. No, I mean, I would also argue that if you put, like, an extra road course or two on the schedule, NASCAR has been adding more road courses to their schedules in all three series. Um, Arca used to have a decent number of road courses. They used to go to New Jersey Motorsports Park, which that uh, series, uh, that track really fit the series. Uh, I feel like I really good. I feel like the road courses that aren't talked about enough actually f- would fit the series a lot better. The 1.5 mile road course Lime Rock yes. would be like a good fit for that series as well. And it's not even a scheduling conflict because Lime yeah. Rock Park. You know the whole thing about Lime Rock Park can't run on Sundays because it's on the property of a church. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean that wouldn't that wouldn't Friday affect Arca because they run on um, usually like Thursdays or Fridays, you know, sometime during the weekend. Yeah, but yeah, it's like yeah, or New Jersey Motorsports Park, or go back to VIR where the K and N series ran, you know, or even Road America. You know, the couple of races they've ran at Road America have been great too. I'm not again. I haven't really been high on Mid Ohio. Um, Personally, I mean, my favorite, if you just want to name it, my favorite road course um, is Montreal. Right. I think that would, 
even though that is a very good course, and as you were saying about Mid Ohio, I like the first part of the course, but like the second part just kind of falls flat. You're going mm-hmm. left, right, left, right. But no, yeah. Montreal, I think is a great track. And I think that NASCAR nationally should go back to that. However, I think that it's hard enough. I think like, um, you know, it may have been hard enough for, for ARCA um, for everybody to, to, to travel, especially during the pandemic, even though things yeah. have seemed yeah. to ease up now, oh, yeah. but trying to cross that international border for ARCA, I feel like a lot of people would have a lot of trouble with the, um, with with the international fees and stuff like that and the passports mm-hmm. and everything i i just don't think logistically that it would be viable for arca but i do agree i do like the track i just i just liked new jersey motorsports park because uh yeah it fit I, the I series well like it fit the series well and it fit the fuel mileage on my ford escape well because <laughs> it's only I'm, I'm actually only 45 minutes away from new jersey motorsports park and if i had gotten into motorsports earlier then i would have been happy to go to go to that now the only thing that ran there last year that's not like 24 hours of lemons like those you know those those scrappy like 90s buffed up cars that's that have still entertaining though i love those it's, it's still extremely it's still extremely entertaining when they had like um when they had rush drummer neil pert driving one of those races um mm-hmm. yeah and um and I think it was Indy Pro 2000 that ran there either yep. last year or they might be running again this year. I haven't gotten a good chance to look at the 2022 track schedule for them. But like a lot of the places in the Northeast haven't really been uh, suited well. And it's not like we're cold all year. It's like 85 out here. And I got my fan right behind me fully running. So it's a it, it's it's perfectly suitable. And as you said, New Jersey Motorsports Park fit it well. Now, the only thing that I may object to with njmp is i don't think there was a whole lot of grandstands there or yes, at least that, and that's been the problem at a lot of the like same with lime rock same with uh i could say mid ohio but the, you know when they when the xfinity series started going there they really made some improvements and the trucks go there too now right yeah the xfinity series no longer going there the trucks i think it's just trucks and arca yeah, and and with that and with that NASCAR National Series, I mean, you you have to have that kind of grandstand seating. But like mm-hmm. for for New Jersey Motorsports Park for 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 us personally, in New Jersey, it's in the middle of nowhere. It is yeah. it is in the middle of what we call the Pine Barrens. There's just a whole bunch of forest to your left and to your right. It's really out of the way. Even though Millville is a pretty decently sized town slash city, whatever you want to call it, it's probably got about fifty thousand, sixty thousand people it's just not in a great location for a racetrack that people can easily get to because you have to cross over one of the three major bridges like the Delaware Memorial to get over to Jersey from Pennsylvania or Delaware. And for NJMP, even though you said it's suitable for the series, I don't think they're going to be coming back unless they add more grandstands. And yeah, was the the last race at NJMP that was like 2013, 2014, 16. 2016 okay that i didn't know but were any of those races ever televised nope it was one of the few arca races that would not be televised which i believe was another reason why it hurt this series even the crowd attendance was not very good i think it's just a track that's like you said middle of nowhere a race wasn't probably well promoted um which is a shame because that's kind of been the thing that's hurt a lot of arca i feel like that's the thing that hurts arca so much is that arca gets 
so much bad publicity, and I just don't understand it. You know, a lot of people really crapped on ARCA last year when Ty Gibbs was absolutely dominating. And I'm like, guys, I understand that, but, you know. It's a Joe Gibbs prepped car. What do you expect? <laughs> yeah, and but the series itself was still putting on great racing. Yeah, you know, may have been for second place, but you can't tell me that a lot of the races last season were still bangers, were still very entertaining, you know, like, yeah, fine the racing might not be very good when one guy's just dominating, but sometimes you have to look past first place and look at the overall action behind the field. Like I'll say there were quite a few arc races that were very entertaining last year. My personal favorite was the dirt. Um, I'll say dirt crap show in Ducoin where <laughs> dirt wasn't packed correctly. And literally every car in the field was just destroyed. Only six finished. Ooh, that was how many probably entered? my favorite race of the season. Do you know how um, many entered at the coin? Only 15 had entered. That's still 11 um, DNFs, though, and 11 hurt feelings. Yeah. More than 11 hurt feelings. Yeah, and my favorite part was watching, you know, Taylor Gray, who had a busted, two busted tire rods, still going for the lead because his car was handling that badly. That I'm like, if they would have watched that. Right. The problem is that people, I feel like, would call that stupid racing. Like, what is he doing? He should be pitting. And I'm like, it's called going for the win. You know, these cars, yeah. these are, you do what you got to do. You these either, whether, you, whether you have a wrecked up race car or not, you, you go for yeah. the best position that you can get. Yeah. And these ARCA cars, you know, for the higher end teams, they are a little bit more expendable than, you know, you would say an Xfinity car or, you know, a cup car back when, you know, they were running the gen six chassis because, you know, even I would say Xfinity chassis could be transferred over to ARCA cars, really any kind of chassis um, from the, uh, Xfinity or cup days could be transferred to ARCA. It just has to have a lot of updates and a lot of um, bars installed um, because they might look the same, but in reality, the difference between a cup and ARCA chassis, despite being the same body style, they're actually a lot more different than people realize. Not a lot of work has to go into it, but enough to where it would take some elbow grease. Now, are you talking about, um, when you're talking about cup chassis, are you talking about like Gen 6 or are you talking about yes. like, okay, yes. gotcha. Because uh, next gen is a whole other can of worms. Cause... Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's completely out of the picture. Yeah. All right. Well, at least for a couple of years, because, you know, Arco was running Gen 4 cars during the Gen 4 era and past the Gen 4 era. And next gen is so expensive and it's so exclusionary where, um, you know, I don't know if that's the right word, but if you're it, like, um, uh, what's it called like mbm motorsports they fielded two cars in the daytona 500 both failed to qualify it's jj yaley's car got lapped in the dual race in like the first 15 laps a couple of years ago they might not have had that same problem or they might have lost a draft later <laughs> and got lapped later but the disparities that NASCAR is creating in the charter system, which, oh, <laughs> speak yeah, of the devil, I, I speak, I, speak I, I of the devil, but, <laughs> but yeah, but, um, you know, everything that, go, that goes on in the cup series and all the way down the totem pole to ARCA, you could, you could argue that what you were saying with, oh, ARCA, you know, um, doesn't have, or at least people don't think ARCA doesn't have good racing. Um, you could mm -hmm. partially blame that on TV production because 
Yeah. It, there's this hyper fixation on following the leader. The leader could have a five second lead over second place and there could be a really good battle in the top five, but they want to focus on the leader. They're going to talk about the leader. They're going to talk about them for all this time. They're going to bring in the pit reporters to talk about them. They never talk about the people in the middle of the field or in back of the field. I, what I always did, I ran this, um, this like, offline adventure where um ai cars and nascar race in 2003 went around in circles for like an hour and a half what i always did even if the racing wasn't that interesting was i went through the field and i looked at every car in every position and i kind of acknowledged them talked about how their day has been going and moved on and i feel like every nascar broadcast whether it's fox nbc uh flow racing or mav tv anything like that they really should consider paying more attention to the battles in the middle of the field because who wants to watch one car or two cars go around in in circles for half hour 45 minutes when you can when during dead time instead of you know going to a uh, going to a commercial where you can't even see anything like the at least the non-stop commercials you can actually see the action but like during these down times you can at least go through the field cycle through the field see how they're doing because you never know, there might be some good battles that are hidden from the TV cameras. Yeah, for sure. Like I think back when ESPN did the uh, through the field days, I really wish they would bring something like that back on. And like for every car that is still running on track, I mean, it might take some time, but I really would like to see every single car in the field. Even if you only have to talk about them for about 15 or 20 seconds, give that car on the track, some publicity, mention the driver, mention the team, mention the sponsor. Um, give that car some um, airtime. I feel like that should be done in all four series, including ARCA, especially ARCA and trucks, where you see a lot of great stories that you don't normally see. Right. A lot of low-budget teams getting some really solid runs, and all you hear about is whether, you know, these, you know, the NASCAR media people, that's where you really only hear it from because, you know, TV won't mention, you know, a great run in 13th where, you know, you know, an awesome guy like Pockris, he'll go up to that guy who finished 13th right. for, you know, a 30th place team and, you know, interview him. And I feel like, man, if we could get that on TV, get that sponsor on TV, that sponsor would want to come back more. And, you know, that driver could then show off his talent again and again and again, but it just doesn't happen. And I think that um, guys like Bob Pockris, those are the kind of people that you need because, Pockris is Pockris is the kind of guy that covers both the front and the back. And he does it for a he doesn't do it for some, you know, startup media company. He does it for Fox Sports. And he really brings that important information of the middle and the back of the field to the limelight. And he he's a he's a very good journalist that's been doing it for a long time. And I really hope that he gets a lot of the publicity that he deserves because he is a very, um, very talented reporter. And I think that's a lost art. I really think it is. Um, that's why people like Brock Beard are around to interview the people that One of my great friends. Yeah. I, I do want to get him on here eventually, but you were actually the first person that I had um, asked about an interview because you already fought. We already followed each other on Twitter. I had already um, interacted with a lot of your posts and I was just like, this guy mm-hmm. probably is, does not have a hectic schedule outside of race weekend. So <laughs> that's, that's how I had that time. But um you know, for for uh, the people that cover these kind of stories, the the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, 
you know, they're, they're very versatile in what they do. And that's also what you do, even though you have a specialty for the underfunded teams in the back of the pack. It it can get pretty ugly on the underfunded side, as we've seen, not just what we've seen in the last couple of weeks. It's, it, it can get pretty ugly on the lower budget scene, just as much as the cup scene, but you don't hear about those stories. The crew members who have worked for those teams, those are the ones who are telling those stories, but People don't realize, you know, the low-budget guys aren't just showing up and going home every week with no problems, man. Trust me. The stories that I've heard, some of which I wish I could say on here, but I get my (laughs) behind kicked for it. Um, It is very uh, ruthless over there. It is just as ruthless as the big boys. Trust me. It's cutthroat from first all the way to 38th because that's how how this business kind of has become. NASCAR is a sport with no mercy. It really is. Um, yeah, but I, I yeah. that's what I appreciate about though. It's been like that since the very first race, right. where the very first winner got disqualified. <laughs> this sport makes no sense. It's just yeah. yeah, and that's why we love it. That's why we love it. Yeah, because this is um, this is a sport that really brings a lot of people together for different reasons. People like different drivers. People disagree about different drivers, but we all end up watching the same race and we all enjoy it for mostly the same reasons. And I think that that's what is really important about motorsports. And I think also the underfunded point, the underfunded teams, that's what makes NASCAR different from really any other motorsport. Even the underfunded teams in, say, IndyCar. Um, Off the top of my head, I would say AJ Foyt Racing, I guess, with um, because one of their sponsors just had their paychecks bounce so yeah apparently uh the 11 post mid ohio apparently from what they're saying the 11 unfortunately will not be running post mid ohio due to rocket or rocket i I think it's it's rocket yeah because it's an ro yeah yeah so yeah they uh they had some sponsorship troubles but i would really yeah like like hunkos um dale coin you know Mm -hmm. and you look at them they're not you can't really consider them low budget because you got to have quite a chunk of change to be an indy car yeah. But still, no matter what, you have your teams who will have lesser assets. Um, you know, my favorite stories were, you know, like when it comes to IndyCar would be the Indianapolis 500, where you got a bunch of guys, a couple of investors, you go out and buy a car from a big league team, you put your own setup in it, you put your own motor in it, you go to Indianapolis and you try to make the big boy race. Right. That's Again, it's those stories, like going back when I was a kid and watching Bump Day, and watching this low, low budget team trying to knock out the big boys, it was amazing. Like, I will still say. Even if they came up short. Yeah. Like, but I'll even say my favorite all-time underdog moment in IndyCar history was watching ARCA driver Andy Hillenberg make the Indianapolis 500 when it was at the peak of really entries from cart to the actual IndyCar series and just the the amount of money that was in that series back in 2000. And for a guy like Andy Hillenberg to make it, that in is the middle of the split. Yeah. Like my all time favorite IndyCar moment is that moment. Andy Hillenberg making the Indy 500. And I think that JJ Ailey also qualified for, or at least attempted to qualify in 99. Yeah, he, he ran and finished in the top 10 in the 98 Indy 500. 98. Okay. Yeah. I, I forgot about Ailey Cause that was, um, because people forget about Yaley. He's such an interesting guy. Um, I, yeah. yeah, I'm sure you've seen my posts about it. I have said for many years that Yaley, they tried to rush him like Tony Stewart, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not everybody's Tony Stewart. They rushed him too quickly. He didn't get the results. 
Um, running him, in my opinion, running Bush and Cup in the same year was a death sentence because how are you supposed to focus on one series? Yeah. But fans this forget, isn't Kevin Harvick 2001. Yeah, like what fans forget is although they might have looked the same, the Cup cars and Bush cars from 2005 and six were completely different. Right. They would not fit the same templates. They really were two different cars from setups. And that was also in the height of the Twisted Sister era. Yep. And it's like, but then you look at like Yaley, you know, he he went right from the top, right to the bottom. And I always became an advocate for him. I was always a fan of him. You know, he would get these decent Xfinity rides and he would show you, man, okay, this guy's got it. And even into now his late 40s, he'll be 46 years old in October. He has really taken MBM to a next level in their program. And, you know, you look at what he did for RSS. You look at what he did for TriStar. Really got the most out of their cars. I cannot tell you how impressed I was seeing him finish 15 laps ahead of his Rick Ware teammates. Yeah, I mean, and that's why I'm like kind of slightly peeved about the fact that he got sacked from the 66 for, I think it was either this weekend or last weekend for Natalie Decker, which Decker's not like a bad racer in, in any way, but he's had that 66. He ran like top 15, top 20 at Vegas. He's ran top 20 in a whole bunch of other races. Like I understand that motorsports is a business, but giving Yaley the 13 is going to sack his, uh, at least, um, was it for this weekend at Road America? Yeah, uh, that was just kind of a business move. I can't yeah. get into all that, but my take on that, it was just to give both cars a better shot of making the race. Yaley is back in the 66 this weekend and probably for the foreseeable future will be in that car. That's good. Um, I he think it was be. just a case of MBM wanting to get both cars in the show. You know, Decker, she failed to qualify. I don't think she's even made a start this season. And Carl wanted to get her in the show. I think it was just a case of she's got a great sponsor. Let's make sure she can get in the show. And we'll give Yaley the 13 because Yaley's also one of the best qualifiers in the business. You he's give a him hot a lap merchant, as they say. Yeah, he, he'll take a junk car and he'll get that sucker in the show. Um, that's exactly what he did um, again that weekend. Um, unfortunately, had some battery issues. But, yeah, that I, I don't really – I don't really put that on hate on anyone. That was just kind of a business move to get both cars in the show, which at the end of the day, it's a business. If you want to get both cars in the show, sometimes you got to make some sacrifices, which, Hey, I've been on teams who have done that. I've, like I said, I've worked for MBM. I've seen that first close enough hand and I understand it because at the end of the day, it's a business and Carl long, great friend. He's got to make a living. So I'm not judging. I understand it. Right. hundred percent. And I think that's also why this weekend at road America, um, Ryan Vargas got moved. I mean, popular fan figure. Of course, um, yeah. Yeah, he's he's one of my favorites. That would be another like like must want on the show kind of thing. Ryan Vargas. Um, yeah, would definitely recommend it. He's a great guy. Yeah, I mean, he's he's got a lot of intellect for his age. You know, only twenty one years old. I think twenty one, right? Um, I'm not sure of his age. I know he's young. He's around yeah, my he's age. A, he's a young guy, but um, you know, he he usually runs the sixth for uh, JD with uh, Gary Keller, but he got moved to Mike Harmon's number 47 because of Ty Dillon. And he said very explicitly in his, yeah, it's just a Twitter business. Post, it's a business. Like, don't hate on it. You know, yeah. it's a business decision. And that's what I, one thing I really wish we could teach these young fans. And I hope, you know, a lot of them understand it, but some who still don't like, Hey, this is a business. These teams got to do what they got to do. Yes. You know, Ty Dillon, he wants to get extra experience. 
Um, he's going to go drive for JD Motorsports. Could there be some RCR affiliate equipment in that car? Absolutely. There probably will be. Yeah. That's going to be a full on um, JDM car or whether that's going to be an RCR affiliated car. Right. But at the end of the day, it's a business decision. Um, Brennan Poole. Um, Although wouldn't that Ty Dillon yeah. car be closer to a GMS affiliated car? But GMS doesn't have a um, Xfinity program to my knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that. I'm just, that's kind of what I'm, that's kind of how. Yeah, okay, I can see where you're going with that. Cause, yeah. Because that's where Dylan runs true, in, true. In, in Cup. He doesn't really, he's not really with RCR anymore. Still, I, I would expect that car to have some upgrades, if you know what oh, I yeah. mean. Oh, yeah. No, 100%. Yeah, that's you know? what I'm trying to insinuate. Yeah. Like SS Greenlight, um, they probably wouldn't have won at Auto Club without basically having, it's, it was basically a Stuart Haas prep car it was. with with ss green light stickers and decals on it yeah but i mean i i didn't care bobby dodder got a win i, yes, he, I didn't care and, and that's ex- and that's exactly that made me happy and that is exactly how i saw it as well who cares who's in the car you know i know that bushwhacking kind of set some people off in in some ways because they don't like oh you know this is the yeah. series you know why is kyle bush winning all these races when he's winning all those races in cup but you also have to realize that the drivers openly welcome these bushwhackers yeah. because uh, they, yeah, they need do. the experience mm-hmm. they need to know what line to run they need to know they need to learn from the best of the best so even though yeah, i be- i used to be a firm and yeah. like staunch just hater of bushwhacking but now i have understood it's art Same. and why it matters in nascar's lower yep. series I, I was i was right there with you man back when i was a young kid watching the nationwide series i got tired of it even though my favorite was Kizilowski, i still got tired of it um but I, I respect it now i mean you got those kids out there who can go beat a guy like kyle bush and harvick and hamlin when they come down to this series that opens up a lot of eyes and it's gotten a lot of those kids, some opportunities to drive some really great equipment. And I think that I, I, I I will say that like the 2006 to 2008 era, maybe even going into like 2010 when there were no restrictions on how many races. Those were were pretty bad. Those were like 2007, you know, like I, I looked at one of the like J ski entry lists for one of those races and like half the field was cup regulars. You might, you might as well call, you might as well call it cup squared or cup light, you know, (laughs) like it's, it's not really a grand national series. If all the people that are supposed to be in D one are also running D two. So it didn't really click, but there's a lot I've heard a lot of bad stories from a lot of who are Xfinity only teams um, in that late era, a lot of bad stories about how they would try to go to NASCAR to fix that. But I, I can't get into the whole story, right. but I heard, I've heard my fair share of stories of teams who uh, really got pushed out of the sport because of that, because they simply couldn't keep up and their sponsor left them. I can't name the team, but that's kind of what happened. They weren't running as good anymore. Their sponsor left to go join a cup affiliated team and that pretty much killed their team, even though they had the money to continue. They just didn't have any sponsorship to continue. Yeah, and I think that that was a main uh, a main victory for for NASCAR when they imposed those restrictions, where you could only declare points for one series, you could only run this number of races in a year if you were a Cup regular, and you know, like I said, um, you could only you you could only get points in Cup if you were in Cup. You could only get points in Xfinity if you were in Xfinity that kind of stuff. And I do like that because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, seeing, seeing guys like Kyle Busch 
win races all the time in in the Infinity and Trucks. I'm not the biggest fan of Kyle Busch. I'll say it outright. But do I think that his winning in the Xfinity and Truck Series is unjustified? No, because he he duly earned that win. And uh, whether it's for his team or JGR or any other any other team, you know, like when he was running for Billy Ballou, um, you know, those wins, whether you're a cup regular or a truck regular, are duly earned. And mm-hmm. what I didn't like was when it was it was almost like an invasion, if you will. Like, yeah, the Xfinity or the uh, at the time Bush and Nationwide regulars, the, yeah, they needed more experience with the big boys, mm-hmm. and so did the trucks. But it, there was a point where it became overkill, if you will. Yeah, I th- I think that was yeah. definitely definitely true in the last yeah, like, ten I years or so. That. And uh, not gonna lie though, in terms of the bushwhacking, I would actually like to see like we've seen Brandon Jones come down to ARCA and run an ARCA race. I know it'd be way out of left field, but this is just the ARCA fan in me, not the crew ARCA guy in me. Right. I would love to see Kyle Busch come down and run an ARCA race mm-hmm. to really see like this is. This type of car, he has not driven in a long time because an ARCA car is set up way different than a Gen 6 normal cup car would be. I would love to see Kyle Busch come down to the ARCA series, any track in particular, and let's see what he's got. You know, I mean, these cars, it's a different horsepower than the Gen um, 6s did have. These cars, uh, ARCA runs 650s. It's a different motor. Is that for all races? Yes, yeah, 650 oh, okay. at all races. Because I know well, that NASCAR I, fiddles with 550 and 750 and 900. I'm just like, it feels like there's an abacus cranking numbers in my head, but with all these horsepower numbers. But the 650 for all races, at least that's a solid baseline, no matter whether it's yeah, a super Yeah, of course, except the plate tracks. But uh, um, we have 650 there. So I feel like, I don't think, again, people would, he wouldn't dominate as much as people think he would. Like even Brandon Jones, you got to look at those two races that Brandon Jones ran. It really just came down to late race, you know, experience in the end. It didn't come down to, you know, him just flat out having the best car. Cause I'll point at Charlotte, yeah. you know, I'll say at 100%. Charlotte, Sanchez or Caruth, they had the best car. At the end of the day, it was just long green flag run experience. And I point the exact same thing to Iowa, Sammy Smith versus Brandon Jones, long green flag run experience prevailed for Brandon Jones. Now would that same thing happen for Kyle Busch? Probably but could guys like Jesse Love, Sanchez, Carruth, you know, be right up there with him and probably even pass him on these short runs? Absolutely. And I think it, I think as you were saying, it, um, you know, the long run, I think in that race at Charlotte did see, did seem to matter a lot. Cause there were a couple early cautions in there. I know that um, Alex club's car got some sort of issue in like lap five. And there were a couple of, of other incidents before then. Um, who, was, who was the car that caught on fire? Like 20 laps in. Uh, that was Will Kimmel, and boy, Will Kimmel, I, yes. I, Will Will is also a good friend, and that 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 hurt, man. After seeing what happened to Scott and seeing that car go to the scrapyard, this one didn't go to the scrapyard, but it was heavily damaged, and it just it pains me because Bill Bill's always been nice to me. Will has always been nice to me. Frank, the, the Kimmels have been nothing but kind to me. Any race I go to, I always open to any questions I have. Is um is Frank still working with Kimmel's race team, even though he's not Frank racing anymore? Frank is working with DGR. Oh, he's oh he's working with DGR now. I didn't know yeah, that. He's okay. been with David Gillen's team for three or four years now. Oh, okay, that's that's interesting. I w- I I guess when you see that DGR probably has a better 
um, I guess you could say better development pipeline, I guess you could say than than Kimmel, because he doesn't have Kimmel doesn't have any like manufacture kind of um direct support i don't think uh, it's a shame because yeah. i'm telling you will will hasn't gotten many chances i'm, I'm a big advocate for will kimmel he's re- he's really good and he just hasn't gotten the chances that he really deserves um i don't know when they're going to come back like i said you know the crash at talladega the crash at charlotte really kind of set them back they've been kind of running some lower tier stock races at their home race at salem mm-hmm. but uh i don't know when we're going to see kimmel back well, yeah, like going back to what I said, it's just like the, the long runs, green flag pace. I wish that was something we still had in ARCA because a lot of these ARCA races back in the day were not as short as they were now. No, they were, they, they were, were I think ARCA before the NASCAR acquisition, they were pretty long. Yeah, you know, there were some ARCA races, you know, like there's one at Atlanta that would go almost uh, 200 laps. You know, they would run, you know, 250 lap races at the short tracks. Like the Iowa race used to be 250. Now it's 150. I think another thing that's hurting the series is the short races. We need to have these kids run these long races for number one, stamina. And number two, get that long green flag run experience. That's been another one of my advocates is you've got to have these kids build that stamina, you know, in those ARCA cars at like a Chicagoland that race, in my opinion, shouldn't be 100. It should be about 125, 150. I think ARCA races should be the same length as most truck races, in my yeah. opinion. Because if, really... ARCA, if ARCA and trucks yeah. uh, fiscally are basically the same to operate, if not a little bit, you know, a little bit give or take on each side, it's still, I think, uh, important that if a lot of the ARCA kids are going to be running trucks, and if some of the trucks are going to be running ARCA, but m- mostly ARCA kids running part-time partial schedules in trucks, then it's going to be a whole different ballgame when they step into that truck and they have to go on those longer runs, which longer than ARCA or oh, excuse me, longer than, um, yeah, longer than ARCA. Yeah. Yeah. So like, th- that's just my main gripe. Like I got a lot of gripes that I wish I could help fix the series, but you know, what do I know? I'm just some kid who, you know, hel- helps out a low budget team and does a podcast, but you know, I, I, it's something I wish I feel like would help the sport because I honestly feel like it would. It's not just a random idea that I'm throwing out of left field. You know, bring back the longer ARCA races. You know, bring back, you know, um, the some cup guys that would come down to ARCA because I don't really remember the last time a cup guy who was there for a cup race came down to run the ARCA race. I can't honestly remember the last time that happened. Would it be Kyle um, Larson? Didn't he run something in 2014? I thought he I thought he won the ARCA race of Pocono that year. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say that or Trevor Bain maybe in 2015. Right. But it just it's been so long. I'd like to see these cup guys come back down and, and run again because it, it's it would bring more life into the series, it would bring more eyes, it would bring a bigger audience. And I think there's also there's only a couple of weekends in a year, as far as I'm concerned, where there's cup racing and ARCA racing in the yeah. same general vicinity, even if not at the direct same track like Phoenix would be. But if it's just ARCA and cup in the same weekend in the same general vicinity that you can travel to, then it makes sense for somebody to do that. And it makes sense fiscally because these multimillionaire teams with a lot of money, they can field a whole bunch of Xfinity cars for their bushwhackers. But I don't, I don't know why they're not exactly dabbling their, their hand into ARCA. 
I think that's just because of the field. It's just a competition. And at the end of the day, I understand that business decision a, right. a thousand percent. You know, I mean, heck, if I was a cup team and I would send my guy to ARC or Xfinity, I'd send him with Xfinity in a heartbeat. And you're and that's coming from an ARCA fan. So, yeah, it, I, it, I mean, there's there's kind of a point where you you love the series, but you just kind of have to take a step back and take a reality yeah. check. And that's what I've done a lot of my uh, done with a, with myself is like yeah i want to see this i want to see that for the series but at the end of the day i just got to accept that the series is where it is and you know a guy like me there's not much i can really do about it but i can still give the ideas and you know hope that one day the series will somewhere get back to where it used to be but you know we'll just have to see yeah so we're gonna shift gears a little bit because yeah, we are gonna talk about the long awaited incident if you don't mind this has been brewing on the back of my back burner for a little while because a couple weeks ago people remembered sonoma raceway for daniel suarez getting his first win and an exciting cup race but lower down some of the more uh sophisticated with the sport nascar fans have probably heard about Tim Vane's and the G2G racing incident. Now, for the fans that don't know, I'll give you what I know, and maybe Colby will be able to provide his side of the story. I haven't gotten the chance, all honesty, to listen to your podcast yet from um, last night because I've just been so busy preparing for this episode and everything else, but I will give I will give that a chance um, after we're done recording tonight. But... Um, Basically, what had happened at Sonoma was G2G Racing, owned by Tim Vanes, and I believe uh, is is some sort of um, analogy for Glory to God Racing. I'm right. Am I right there? Yes, Glory to God Racing. Yes. Yes. So that's basically what it is. It's Tim Vanes' team, and it was supposed to be for um, for Sonoma Mason Maggio in the 46 for G2G. Mason and- Felipe. Mason Filippi. Okay, my bad. Mason Filippi. Um, and Travis McCullough, a local short track racer, yeah. I believe from the area, from the West Coast, um, in the 47 for that weekend. Now, there were problems from the get-go, basically with the fact being that the 47 truck was a pile of nuts and bolts. Um, and the uh, the 46 truck eventually met um, Filippi wasn't really able to to race in so stefan parsons took over and went to practice in that car now the 47 never turned a lap in practice never made a qualifying lap and didn't start the race now part of this was because there was a delayed drug test result that was waiting from the lab and and many people jumped the gun on nascar twitter and basically said oh travis mccullough you know Failed a drug test. No, that's not what happened. The 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 test was delayed from the lab. And the bigger the bigger point is that the car was a pile or the truck was a pile of nuts and bolts. There really wasn't anything that inspection officials couldn't do. They kind of went up to the car and was like, Well, what do you want us to do here? <laughs> there's there, there's really nothing that they could have done to make it race ready. So hopefully we'll get a good side of the story from from what you've understood um and in this whole scenario with g2g racing which of course has had many problems over the year uh, over the year because they just started this year mm-hmm. although tim veins has 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 made truck starts and um and everything else yeah, before but 
he's he's been in the sport for a long time um so even though i haven't gotten a chance to listen to your arca racing podcast from last night yet um i know you mentioned travis mccullough did you get have you gotten um to contact with travis at all after the incident yeah very briefly uh we've dm'd each other on social media um you know, Brock Beard's article and Matthew Burroughs' article really went into detail. I just kind of read them and put a little bit of a spin of what I had also been told. Um, so, yeah, the 46 uh, truck was, I would say about, from what they said, about 75 to 90% ready to go. This is their reports at the track. Um, whereas from Travis's perspective, the 47 was missing, you know, part of the brakes. You know, the motor wasn't finished. Um, some of the seat parts weren't fully installed. Um, you know, the rear end housing was missing a few parts. Just basically the truck just did not look ready from Travis's perspective. The brake ducts were not set to compete, um, in the right fashion. Travis stated that even if they had gotten the truck ready to go, that there was no way it was going to finish, but he just wanted to start the race or at least try to make the show so he could make his first start. Um, then while they were working on the truck, apparently, you know, the drug test results, he had taken the test. God, I don't remember the article in specifically, but I think it he said he took the test, test on Wednesday. The results of that had not week. come back in yet. Um, so therefore, I mean, I think he was still allowed to work on the truck, but he still had to wait. Um, another reason that was they were in a hurry is the G2G hauler uh, showed up to the track a mere 90 minutes before the first practice. Whereas most teams were unloaded and going through tech, the G2G hauler was not there yet. And both Mason and Travis were literally just standing there in the garage with their gear and stuff. um, Waiting. waiting. I mean, that's all they could do. And now with this whole, I I hate to interrupt, but this, this whole drug test deal, that I believe from the article that I had read that he took the drug test on Wednesday of that week. Um, and they got the test back, I think either the day of, or the day before the race was supposed to be. And by that time it was too late. Do you think that this late drug test is sort of a, not maybe a fault of NASCAR, but more of a st- systemic fault of, um, of, of the drug testing, say, m- uh, inaccuracies that have happened over the last couple of years, because um, for example, everybody knows about the whole Jeremy Mayfield thing. And I've listened to the Dale jr. Download and his interview with Jeremy. Um, I feel like a lot of the hysteria and paranoia over this late drug test that was coming in um, was partially stemmed from that whole thing with Jeremy Mayfield, because even though NASCAR has, had its drug policy for at least 12, 13 years now, now that we're in 2022 and that was founded in 08, 09. um, It still feels like there's maybe some incomplete spots that, that don't seem to be up to date with everything with everybody else and their drug policy. I think that's why some people were skeptical of Travis and that late drug test. Yeah. I, I believe he got the results actually on Monday because he posted that picture of his, uh, you know, successful test. He passed it. Yeah. But it came in, I believe, on Monday is when he posted the picture of it. So I think even had they gotten the truck ready, there was no way that Travis was going to be able to drive it. Um, so then was then, you know, 
Another case is that since you didn't get any practice laps, you know, a lot of the ways in NASCAR ruling is sometimes when you don't get practice laps, they won't approve you for qualifying because in NASCAR's eyes, you haven't been able to prove to us that you belong on the track. And it's not like he was an experienced NASCAR driver. This was going to be his first start. But yeah, I mean, you know, when you're in the lower budget teams and, you know, you haven't been on the track in a while, NASCAR is just going to look right past that. And being like, okay, well, you got to really prove yourself to us. And that's rightfully understandable. I mean, Travis, you know, he's never driven a truck before. So it doesn't matter, you know, if you've had experience on that track, you still have to prove to NASCAR that you know what you're doing, no matter how, you know, weird that might be. And it was clear that wasn't going to happen. Um, yeah, the, so the drug test results on. on Monday wouldn't have done anything because that was yeah, well after really, the cup race. There was no chance of him driving. Yeah, there was no chance. And even if they had gotten a reserve driver, the pile of nuts and bolts that they called a number 47 truck wouldn't have even been able to pass inspection, wouldn't have even wouldn't have been even able to come close to that. So it's yeah. just it's it's a whole mess. And um, I, I think that a main thing that has also been a point of controversy over Tim and his operation of the team and how he handled the Sonoma situation was his doubling down, if you will, because it's easy to say that the 47 truck wasn't prepared for the race and it's easy to admit, or maybe in some cases, depending on the context, it's easy to admit a mistake. You can Mm -hmm. admit that you accidentally spun somebody out. You can admit that you accidentally um, you know, crashed in qualifying or whatever, but it's hard to admit that you quote accidentally um, prepared a truck that wasn't even ready to race with the missing engine parts, the missing brake valves, um, the missing rear end housing. Um, and you have these two drivers that are waiting for your hauler to show up 90 minutes before first practice in my opinion, I think that that deserved much more than a doubling down from team owner veins. I really think that he should have owned up and kept um, account and, and held the responsibility and, and held accountability because his team is already not at a good reputation. There's a lot of crashes that they had had that year, a lot of mechanical failures, a lot of on-track incidents with other drivers. They really had not set themselves up for success, especially if you look at the 2021 truck race at Daytona. I uh, That was the first NASCAR race that I was going to attend in six years, and I remember we were driving on I-4, headed up from our hotel in Orlando to the racetrack in Daytona, and I'm watching qualifying on FS1 or FS2, whatever, and oh, there's this guy running on pit lane without a drive shaft. Drive shaft fell out of the back of the car or out of the truck. But you know, yeah. like Tim Vane's doesn't. Tim Vane's already doesn't have the best reputation in NASCAR, and now he's going to double down because of these trucks that weren't prepared with two drivers that were waiting on the hauler and these unprepared race teams that don't shine a good light on the good actors in the underfunded race team business. Yeah. Um, and that is just Travis's side. Um, I've actually, you know, Tim Vines, I don't know if you've seen it on Twitter. He actually I was about to mention your, your, his mention of you last night. Yeah. He, uh, he has reached out to me and, you know, despite some people telling me not to, I do, I do feel like it is worth no matter, you know, what's happening. Um, Tim Vines will be on my show to give his side of the story. Um, no matter, you know, what people do believe, you know, whatever side they do believe, 
I think it's always fair that we get both sides of the story um, when it comes to any situation, especially something like this. Um, And again, afterwards, you know, people again can choose who they want to believe. I want to make sure we have all sides of the coin, you know, and even after that, Travis will also be on the show. We'll have both Tim on the show and Travis on the show. Not at the same time. Yes. No, that would not work, (laughs) but they will both be on the show to give their sides of the story. And I'm hoping that maybe a down the line, we can, you know, forget about this situation. Cause it's just one of those situations that, you know, like you said, I don't, I don't like it because it does shine a really bad light on the low budget teams. And, you know, for the young fan who was me back in the day is like, Oh, why should I cheer on this team? If they're going to be like this. And I don't right. like to see that. I don't like to hear that. And I don't want that to happen. Cause I've been the advocate, no matter how people perceive these teams and drivers, I have always said I never want to see a NASCAR team fail. Right. Never want to see that in my you, life. I want to you see always every want to team. be the person that roots for yeah. the people to succeed. Yeah, I've always been the guy. I want to see every team succeed. Even if they're not even my favorite driver, I want to see everyone succeed in this business. Um, it's just G2G has definitely had its struggles, but I do look forward to hearing Tim's side of the story. Um, I will admit he's been a little outlandish on social media for my liking but you know some people act differently and i do look forward to talking to him i hope the conversation goes well and i hope people do enjoy it but yeah the d2d situation i think another thing that stems from it is besides the fact of you know sonoma you look at nashville the 46 broken practice and they barely got the truck to start and made only one lap in the actual race. And they've been From running the same heard, throwback paint scheme since Darlington for the 46. Yeah. The, they've been running kind of the same truck with Brennan Poole. That truck finally broke a gateway. Um, you know, the 47 of Caden Honeycutt, they, from what I heard, again, it could be just a rumor. I'd have to get confirmation from that from Vines, but the Honeycuts were pretty much fielding their own truck, fielding the 47 themselves at Nashville. Yeah. And it was under G2D branding, if you will. Yeah, and it's like, and then going back to, you know, the previous races, like with Matt Jasko, I mean, that's where all this controversy with G2G started. You know, Johnny Sauter wanting, uh, running the one race at Daytona and not coming back afterwards. And then you know, Jack I'm going to ask yeah. all those questions because I want those answers, and hopefully he will divulge into that. But, yeah, for sure, you know, for Vines, it's not a good look. It's not just Sonoma. You could put Sonoma as just the icing, the sadly, the icing on top of the cake. A of very the sad cake. <laughs> that G2G yeah. has had and why, you know, they they really are looked at as a joke. And I hate saying that, but they really kind of have put themselves in that position. Because I hate saying that because, while you know, Tim might be not looked at in the best of eyes by most people. I have a lot of friends who have worked and still work for G2G on a part-time basis. And I want to see them succeed. Yes. hundred percent. And I think that, um, you know, if, if you're looking at the G2G situation that closely, I, I truly do commend the fact that you're going to be talking to, to Tim about that, because I think that a lot of race fans would take their side, take the money and run. I don't think that there will be many out there that would go into the detail that you do with your work and 
um, and uh, spend as much time as you do trying to find both sides of the story. Because I think that's what, as I had said with the Dale Jr. download and Jeremy Mayfield's interview earlier this month, that's also another point. Because earlier I thought that Jeremy Mayfield was just some, you know, wackadoo crackhead or meth head. But, um, you know, I heard his side of the story and I started to become more balanced. And I think that a lot of people are mad at G2G. But my take is that these G2G is not scamming their drivers. I really don't think they are. They're not, no. they're not trying to make a fraudulent race team for their own ends. I just think they're misprepared. I think that they're, a, a, you know, they're a scrappy race team that, you know, brings together these crew members from all over. And that really is the, the name of the game for the underfunded teams. But the way that they've been publicized, I think, especially in, in recent events in Sonoma and with Matt Jacksaw, I think that it really sheds a light that I think people don't look at or don't want to look at because mm-hmm. it's an ugly side of NASCAR. NASCAR is not all um, is not all kitties and DuPont rainbows. This is, yeah. um, you know, this is a nitty gritty organization, a tough business, and people need to start acting like it because this is this is one of those cases where the media may have a different spin on the story than what team owner Tim Vines may have to say, or what Mm -hmm. driver McCullough will have to say. And I hope that, you know, that G2G figures this all out because who knows, you know, this could be like a one and done kind of uh, truck team kind of deal where, um, you know, you see these, these teams that make really big ambitions and really big aspirations for the series that they're about to enter and then they just fall off a cliff. That's where I mm-hmm. think, um, like for example, in the Cup Series, um, see, I don't see, I don't work for any organization, so I can I can mention names, but um, yeah. like uh, Live Fast Motorsports with BJ McLeod and um, I forget the other guy's name that that uh, Matt Tift. That's a part of that. You know, they had really big ambitions going into that year, and they got their first top ten at Daytona, and then once the Gen Six was 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 cut out, and they brought in the next gen something's just off about them the sponsorship really isn't all that much there they have sponsors on their cars every week but have you seen the stock value of motorsports games have you seen their public reception to nascar 21 ignition that has it has not been positive i will tell you that mm-hmm. it has been um it has really been a, a crusade for live fast motorsports where it's been one of those teams where you have big ambitions but the hard reality of running a race team hits you fast i mean live fast motorsports i would say really is kind of like bj mcleod motorsports just with a cup program and that's what they did last year they had a uh, matt mills run the 55 uh in cup at kansas the spring kansas race mm-hmm. um and he didn't do that well but it was his first cup start and it wasn't under live fast it was under bj mcleod motorsports so really the whole deal with um with live fast and g2g is their teams with big ambitions. They want to run well. Do I think that G2G is exactly that, um, that well, that um, I would say that level headed for running two trucks in their first season. Do I think that's a little overkill? Yes, because look at what Rick Ware did. They had at some point up to like four or five cup entries, the 15 that, that they got from premium 51, 52, 53, and 54. Yep. People always forget about the 54 because of J.J. Yaley in 2020, but they started to slowly cut that down. And Rick Ware has been 
dipping his toes into almost every racing series imaginable pinties xfinity um um uh, indycar uh even some imza and transam stuff yep. i believe they ran the rolex 24 hours this year and they're going to be running more as time goes on but rick ware i think realized i made a very smart decision by cutting down on his cup entries when it came to next gen so that you could focus on having two good cars and that also allowed track house i believe to expand to their second entry um with the one car of chastain they also allowed um it also allowed you could argue that um i'm forgetting the other team that really benefited from this 23xi they also i believe got one of the rick Ware charters and expanded their entry to the 45 of kurt bush now i will say speaking of 23xi as a pit crew member yourself I, I, w- I will ask as a pit crew member, what is your role? Like, do you change tires? Are you gas man? Like jack of all trades? What do you kind of do with that? I would say jack of all trades. I'm not, I'm not, ex- you know, fast like any of these guys, you know, when you're doing an ARCA, you know, type pit crew, you know, we're not moving that fast. We're just there to make sure the tires are on, make sure the car is full. You know, we're, we're not these eight second masters like these guys are, uh, but you know, I definitely will do any position that is needed. I will do. I have the equipment for it. I would say my favorite is gassing. Um, cause well, I, yeah, I always those, those tires are so tires. darn heavy. No, those gas cans, they, 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 they suck. They, they suck. Uh, even the most fit guys will need a second guy to help get that can in the right position. Cause it's angled in that, in that, in that way. And that's why you see all the professional, like um, former like college football players, former high school f- uh, football, basketball players, all these strong men that are doing pit crew work for NASCAR. I love that, you know, because it's putting them in different work because not everybody's going to make the NFL. Not everybody's going to play in the MLB or NBA, but why don't, why not pit crew and NASCAR team? Cause you're using your strengths to, to good use. Um, how heavy would you say a gas can would be like Full gas tank, about 95 pounds. Oh, my goodness. Uh, 95 wow. to 100 pounds. I didn't even think of that. that's the tanks that we have. That's what okay. I've weighed them as. Okay. So, yeah, would that be – I would assume that would be still lighter than a tire, right? Because you have to get that over the wall. Yeah. Uh, usually the, the second guy will help you get the can up on the on the wall. I would say carrying tires around is definitely a lot. It's, it's still hard, but it's definitely easier mm-hmm. for me right. at least. Maybe not for everybody. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that um, people underestimate the fact that tires are heavy. You know, that's pr- it's why Pep Boys takes like two, three hours to change some tires on your car because they're not the strong men that, you know, that NASCAR pit crew members are. Um, it's a tough job. And the gas can't, I didn't even think it would be like 95 pounds. Jeez, I, wow, that's a, uh, that is a lot of gas, I would imagine. Does ARCA still, or Ar- does ARCA have the same pit crew rule of NASCAR where it's seven seven men over the wall? Seven members. No, over the it's, wall? it's five. Uh, it's oh, it's five, five minutes. Uh, four crew members over the wall, and you basically have five minutes to get your tires changed oh. and fill up your car with fuel. It's, it was a cost cutting measure because with the low payouts of the series, um, it helps bring the fields closer together for. You know, the teams who can't really afford, you know, the professional pit crews over at Excalibur. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's just, it was a cost cutting measure. So you have five minutes. And that's the reason why, like I said, I, I'm not a professional at it yet. I hope, hope to be there. That'd be great. Yeah, but right. Yeah. I just, uh, 
just a guy there who's there to make sure everything's just off the car, on the car, cars filled up, and the adjustments are where they need to be in five minutes, but not five seconds. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that people don't realize how slow pit stops can be, especially if you have four guys over the wall and you have five minutes to do it. In times where it wasn't that easy, you look back, I think it was 2001, the famous Morgan Shepard gets out of his car, changes a tire, drinks a can of Coke and oh, opens yeah, up a bag of chips. That. that was great. Has he ever, um, has he, has he ever given you a reason why he did that? PR stunt. I guess that makes sense, right? The only worst part was, is that happened when the broadcast was under commercial. Right. So the PR stunt really did, did no good. Nope, but it uh, it at least got some attention from the I one photography to you took every single year when it gets put out. Right, because that's it's a funny story. It's, you know, people it's still funny. Yeah, it's still funny because Morgan Shepard is such a laid back guy, and I know that he stepped back from racing because he's you know very very much up there in age. I think he's eighty eight, eighty nine now. But... Parkin, uh yeah, early eighties. He's got Parkinson's. Yeah, he's, yeah, it's... they won't let him on the track anymore, unfortunately. Yeah, but he's had a very, very successful career, and I think that he's enjoyed what he's wanted to do driving since the 60s and 70s. You know, he's had a lifetime of racing, and so has arguably Carl Long. I've heard that Carl Long is quite the interesting character, if not, you know, for his his humor and also just for his way of conducting a race shop. Do you have any interesting Carl Long stories? Uh, the track, yeah, some funny stories. You know, he'll be tough on you, but he'll be nice at the same time. Like almost like a passive aggressive kind of thing. What? Almost like a passive aggressive kind of deal. Like he he's yeah, he's like tough he, but fair. He's hard when he needs to be, especially if it's something really important. Because you know, I try my best to hold myself at a high standard. Because at the end of the day, I'm volunteering with these guys. This is their living. So I can't screw up. So when I do screw up, I take it really personally, even though I probably shouldn't. But that's my own fault. Um, Carl will just come over and he'll be like, this is what you're doing wrong. Let me show you. He'll then take it back apart and tell you to go fix it. And it's a very good way of learning. Yeah, like he'll show you how to put it together, but then he'll take it back apart and tell you to go put it together. Right. It's it's a way of learning, really. It's Mm -hmm. a way because... Once you mess up, if he does, if he puts it together for you, then what lesson does that show that, oh, you just, you don't have to do anything. You just wait for him to show up and help you out. No, you have to do it yourself and you have to figure out how to do it yourself. And, um, and I do agree that Carl Long, even though he has been on the end of maybe not so equal treatment from sanctioning bodies, he still has gotten a lot of respect in the garage i think from everybody Mm -hmm. and everybody knows his trials and tribulations and even though he the next gen has really i think been a setback for them because you know fiscally that's 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 hard to do it's hard to run an open team with because the purse money is so stacked against you even if you finish even if you win the race as an open team the purse money you're going to get is going to be less than less than what a chartered team would get because they're yeah, trying, they're trying to keep those chartered teams in the, in the top mm-hmm. echelon. After 2020, they uh, each open team would get um, $20,000 um, with also a track purse added. And they took that $20,000 away after 2020 
That's why you saw such a significant decrease in open teams from 2020 to 2021, because they literally, unless you had sponsorship, you were maybe getting 10,000. Right. I mean, the people out there who said that the colleague team only got a thousand dollars for winning the Brickyard race. That, that's not true. No, that is not true. Um, in terms of from the track uh, track payout, not NASCAR payout, but the payout from the track, definitely not good, but definitely bigger than a thousand dollars. I don't know where that rumor came from. Well, it's it's the internet, it's social media. Yeah, rumors yeah, spread everywhere. That, yeah, they all they all spread everywhere. Now, I will ask you this: What do you think your future goals are in terms of uh, pit crewing or journalism? Because well, from the from the interview that we've had today, I think yeah. that you have expressed yourself very well and i think that it's not just like i'm putting a regular old guy on the show and having him speak his mind because you have a lot of experience you've had a lot of experience with the young the old every the uh, inexperienced and the experience and i think that the experience that you have had has brought you a long way now where do you take that with you um i admit you know i i enjoy the volunteer crewmanship but, you know, with where the sport is going, where the costs are going and still living in Iowa, unfortunately, not living in North Carolina where I could, you know, volunteer at a shop. Um, I've kind of taken my goals and I have moved them over to the media side of the relations of NASCAR. And I'm trying to basically, you know, become a media guy, kind of like Bob Pockris. Um, I've joined up with a very nice group of guys. I'll give them a shout out, theracingexperts.com. Uh, we're a fun group of guys. Um, we're not front stretch. We're not, you know, these big guys. We're not the biggest organization, It'll but we Christy still love or something like that. We still like to cover races. As for the crew side, you know, like I said, Carl, he's built a great group of guys and gals over there. And, you know, I'll say, you know, proudly, they don't need really volunteer help anymore because they got a really, really solid group of people, probably the best group that MBM's ever had. Um, you know, as for ARCA, kind of both, I would say. I, I want to do crew and yet still be media, but that's kind of kind of a hard thing to do. It's a hard and thing to balance, trucks, I think. Yeah, it is a hard balance. But as for trucks, man, that that's full-on crew. You know, I mean, Timmy Hill... I've known Timmy Hill since 2017, man. And he's been one of my best friends at the track. And I will forever be um, with that guy as long as I can. Um, If I have to give up the media for the weekend to be crew, I'm happy to do that. If I have to give up crew to be media, also happy to do that. But yeah, for Timmy, definitely want to keep up the crewmanship. The volunteership crew opportunities, definitely going to keep as long as I can. But that's another reason why is at the end of the day, those are volunteer opportunities. That's not always going to be there. And with every opportunity, you have to have a fallback. The media gig, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a fallback, but it's where eventually I'm going to start the media thing right now. So that way, eventually, if it does happen and those volunteer opportunities you know, do have to go away, I got the media gig. I'm still there. I'm still at the track and I'm still with my friends. While not in a crew capacity, I can still hang out with them just in a different version, if you know what I mean. 
Oh, I 100% get it. And um, it, it's really being versatile in that industry. You can't really put your foot to the ground and say, I'm going to do this all year because that's not going to work. Oh, God, no. You cannot say that in NASCAR. No. If no, you because you thing in NASCAR, it's going to fail within either a year or a couple years. It, it's really hard to stick to one thing in this sport because it's a sport that changes from crews to drivers to media relations. You, your position could change year to year to year. I've, I have some friends who have done literally every position there is, but drive the car. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's just so many moving parts in motorsports. Let's say Mm -hmm. it's not like, um, it's not like, um, baseball where you got nine guys on a diamond and a guy at the plate. It's, it's a whole lot different. There's, there's the tire changers, there's the gas men, there's the people that bring the car from the garage to the to the racetrack. And there's so many different assistants and 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 personnel. It's just that's why I think that the 2020 season was so hard to manage because couldn't you only have like I think a dozen, if not less, guys at the racetrack? I think it was it was 14 for Cup yeah. and it was like 12 for Xfinity, and they had to be licensed. You couldn't bring volunteer people to the track. Right. They had to be hard card licensed people. Um, and that, re- and you know, I will say that's what really got me into the media side is because those opportunities I had for 2020 were done, you know I mean? And I understood it because, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. I can't yeah, afford the That's license. how the world, that's how the world works. Yeah. You know, those opportunities got cut. I had to make the best of it. Um, but that's really when the media stuff got into my head is like, you know, if something like this happens again, you still got that media on your back. So you're not out of the game. You just have to do something else. And that's a, that's a very important point that, you know, like when I started um, with broadcasting, I started out with broadcasting for my little league clubhouse in 2016, but I eventually Mm -hmm. got into some journalism a couple of years later. And even though the website that I wrote for was now defunct, I wrote, I had a a Super Bowl prediction that I had written in uh, the spring of 2020, just before the world shut down. And I won the grand prize of the contest for 250 bucks and a, and a leading writing position at this startup website. Now the website never happened because COVID shut everything down, yeah, but, it, but it propelled me into an opportunity where people were noticing my work. And the next year it propelled me even further in broadcasting. And that effect still carries today. And I think it still does for you as well um, in, in crewing and, and with media um, for the racing experts and, and everything like that. And um, I will say, one more question for you just overall do you have what is your best story from crewing or media or anything i want to hear because I, I i do this as like the penultimate step in every episode i did this even during the old format do you have what is your best story from your industry from nascar man that is a good one um I would, I could say my best step or story would be ARCA 2018 Iowa. I was volunteering for Wayne Peterson at the time in the series. And we had three people for two cars. I pushed that car through tech by myself. And the funny part of the story is that my dumb self didn't wear pants. I wore shorts. I had the ARC officials almost throw me out because I was wearing shorts and touching the car, which is a huge no-no. Right. 
So I should have been smart enough to realize that. So then we're trying to figure something out. And then Wayne is like, here, throw these on. Wayne throws me a pair of jeans. Now, keep in mind, at the time, I was 350 pounds. Wayne, barely 200. Those jeans were not going to fit me. And I stuffed myself into them. And I got over back over to the car, which is still just sitting there in tech. Nobody's near it because I'm the only guy on it. Right. And I come back and the ARC officials are like, well, I guess it's better than nothing. Keep going. <laughs> I pushed that car by myself up onto the scales, down off the scales, into the engine area, down off the scales again from turn four all the way to turn one for qualifying by myself. It was a 20 year old car. That was arguably my favorite story. Cause I'm wearing jeans that are not fitting me at all. I have to wear a um, bungee cord to keep them up. It's just, it's just, everybody's laughing at me. All the crew guys are laughing at me. All the other crew guys are laughing at me from the other teams. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating, but, but we're, it, we're laughing about it four years later. Yeah, it, it's just, it's funny. I look back at it as probably one of my favorite moments of the track. Um, yeah, and I'd say one of my other favorite stories was, um, you know, I, I can't remember which year it was, but it was one of the Iowa Xfinity races with Carl. We were uh, changing tires in the garage area. And um, instead of just coming over and setting the tire near me, Carl rolls the tire and it hits me right in the side of the shoulder. <laughs> Almost knocks me over. That's, that's like, got to hurt. That's that a roll, rolling tire coming right at your shoulder. That's got to hurt. Yeah. He's like, here you go. Put that sucker on. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, boss, you got it. <laughs> it's like you're going to feel that one in the morning. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was fine. And that's just Carl being Carl, you know, yeah. and that's when we're having a good day. You know, when MBM is not having any issues, we would joke around and have just so much fun together. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen that often because, you know, MBM just doesn't really have the best luck. <laughs> no, but that was probably one of my favorite Carl Long stories. I also say, you know, sitting in the hauler with Timmy Hill telling with them telling road stories that I cannot say, but uh, telling fun road stories and, you know, them telling my stories. It's just, it's those moments where you just, you think to yourself, wow, I'm sitting here and this is happening. And it's just, you, you look back on it a day later and you're like, that happened. Let's just say and not it's those PG-13. memories that you're going to keep with you for a long time. And it's just, those are just some of the stories, man, that oh, yeah. make me so happy that these opportunities and what makes me feel good inside is I didn't have anyone get these opportunities for me. Yeah. I got them myself. And, you know, for anyone like, like you, you know, when you make your own opportunities, it, it brings up your self-confidence in a way that no therapist, no drug could ever do for you. And I really wish like more people out there would do that because it would really improve your self-confidence. I was so quiet when I was young, but these opportunities I made myself have opened me up. I presume they've opened you up more. It's something I wish more people would do. Making your own opportunities will help you so much in life, not having people get them for you. And I 100% agree. Chasing a passion is something that I've been doing for six years, something that you've been doing since 2006. And, you know, you really have um, have set yourself up for a lot of success, whether it's with MBM 
or with any other race team like with Brad Smith. Now, I will say, speaking of Brad Smith, before we um, part ways on this interview that I have thoroughly enjoyed, because this is, I would argue, this is more uh, in-depth than the Ward Burton interview that I did in 2020. Oh, I love Ward. Yeah. If you you get a chance, um, there's like a, I think it's a 40-minute episode that I did on Ward Burton back in September of 2020. I don't know how I got to interview him i don't know how i got the opportunity but i mean i know how i got it but i'm like what are the chances um yeah because i sent him a like a just a general friendly email about my podcast through his wildlife foundation page and Mm -hmm. and the next the next morning at 5 a.m my time so 4 a.m your time five my time he's like yeah we'll schedule an interview we'll schedule an interview and i'm just like oh okay and the what had went wrong with the interview is that 2020 i was not very good at interviewing i had treated yeah. the guest Isn't more like right? it i i i had treated the i had treated the guest more like it was um like a debate than an interview because i was asking them questions but i wasn't really engaging in a whole lot of conversation rather than reflective stuff that was pretty much word for word what he had already said and being like yeah i agree with you that kind of stuff like what we're having now is a conversation that is a lot more like a podcast and less like an interview where you're asking questions and getting answers. And the the questions that I've asked, like probably more than half of them, I hadn't even written down. But from the stuff that you had said, I was able to branch off of that and start mm-hmm. a new you know, subject, a new topic that we were able to start a conversation on. But anyways, with Ward, um, you know, it wasn't really – a whole lot of um, a whole lot of experience that I had in interviewing at that time. So this has been a, a, a big step for me, especially in the world of interviewing somebody from motorsports. Now I will say one more step. Um, your Twitter profile picture has Brad Smith on the right and you on the left. Is Brad Smith really short or are you really tall? Cause I've been, I've been wondering if Brad Smith is like this five foot three guy that just hops in his race car and goes, or if you are like an NBA center in disguise. No, I'm, I'm six, four Brad's oh. Brad's about five. I, I don't know how tall Brad is, but I'm six, four. Oh boy. Yeah. Cause you, you were saying for that 2018 Arca race, you were close to 350 pounds. And I was saying, you don't look 350 pounds. You know? like, I, lost, yeah, I lost a lot of weight. That, I, I lost a lot of weight from that time. Yeah. So yeah, I was going to say, congratulations. Man, to you, that was, that's been something I've been trying to do for the past couple of years. And it takes a lot. I've definitely changed. I would... Yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely, I think an important thing for people to, to change over the years. But I was just looking at that before we, before you joined the zoom call and I was just like, I wonder if he's like extremely tall or if Brad Smith is just a really short fella. And it turns out I was pretty much right. So, uh, six, four, I gotta say five eleven don't sound too bad, but, um, from Colby Evans from the Dan Wilkins show, this has been a wonderful interview. I have really enjoyed talking to somebody that's not an A-list athlete because I've talked to D1 college baseball players. I've talked to professional broadcasters that have worked with MLB clubs, former WNBA players, former NBA players, everything of the sort. I've, I've really talked to a whole bunch of people. And this was the first interview where I felt like I was more talking uh, in a conversational style rather than in a debate slash I want to hear answers I'm going to give you the questions kind of thing and that's why I think this interview was uh was so successful and Colby I'm ho- I hope you enjoyed your time on this show and I hope that yeah. um that you have great success in your ARCA racing podcast you, and 
um, those subsequent interviews with Vanes and McCullough. I can't wait to hear them because I also want to hear both sides of the story. Yeah. Before this interview, I was very, um, very much biased towards McCullough because I was thinking, well, G2G, what's this all about? But now that I've heard what you had to say about Tim Vane's and how you really should hear both sides of the story, I think it's very important that that is addressed. And I think that you are going to do a very good job in interviewing those two individuals and everything that you do with ARCA, um, your experience in that is wonderful. So episode 12 of the Dan Wilkins Show is going to come to an end right here. From Colby Evans, I'm Dan Wilkins. We'll see you next time. Bye, guys.